Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai, I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Tonight, we are celebrating the winners of the 2019 Prime Minister's Science Prizes. Congratulations to all the winners. The prizes were awarded this year in an online ceremony after the original award event was postponed due to the COVID-19 lockdown. The 2019 Prime Minister's Science Prize is New Zealand's premier award for science and it's given for science that is transformational in its impact and it's worth half a million dollars. It's been awarded to the Melting Ice and Rising Seas team, a group of more than 20 geologists, glaciologists, climate and social scientists from Teherenga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, as well as GNS Science and NIWA, and the team is led by the university's Antarctic Research Centre. The scientists are behind the breakthrough discovery that Antarctica's ice sheets melted rapidly in the past and could have a significant impact on global sea level rise over the next 80 years. I catch up with a few members of the team and we'll chat first with geologists Tim Nash and Robert Mackay. I begin by asking Tim what he does. The last 20 years I've been a geologist. I've been looking at the rocks which record Earth's past climate. And one of the things I've been you know, spending a lot of time is looking at past sea level. So I've been interested in reconstructing past global sea level change. And that was you know, about 20 years ago and then about 10 years ago I got the opportunity to go to Antarctica. Maybe it's a bit longer than that, maybe it's 15 years ago. Um, And so a chance to go to the engine room of where these sea level changes were coming from. So for me, it's always been about using the rocks either to understand how sea level has changed or by drilling around the Antarctic margin, how the Antarctic ice sheet has changed through time and particularly during periods of past warmth, which are relevant to the world we're heading towards with global warming. How do rocks, and particularly how does sediment, hold a record of climate change? Wonderfully, Alison. Sediments are, are a wonderful archive. Sediments on the ocean floor, in many places, accumulate continuously over millions of years. So they can record information about the environment, about how warm the ocean was. Pollen gets blown out there. You can reconstruct what was on land. We can use very clever techniques to even reconstruct how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere. And when you're close to an ice sheet, the sediments will record the passage of that ice sheet when it grows and expands and, and, and pushes right out onto the continental shelf and when it retreats again and becomes very small. So even though we get erosion when ice sheets do that, we get this very important record of what the ice sheets have done and particularly when they've retreated during past periods of warmth. 
So past periods, what are we talking about? Millions of years? Tens of millions of years? Yeah, tens of millions of years. But one of the times that's very interesting to us is only three million years ago, and this was known as the Pliocene Warm Period. And this is the last time Earth had the same amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere that we have today. So we have 400 parts per million carbon dioxide today. The last time our world had that level of carbon dioxide was the Pliocene warm period three million years ago. So the question we asked, well, what happened to the Antarctic ice sheet when you put that much CO2 in the atmosphere? And what did happen? Uh, West Antarctica went away. Bits of East Antarctica went away. And global sea level was up to 20 metres higher. So if you leave that level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that's the end game. That's what we're committing the planet to. That's a very sobering thought. It is, and it's one of the things that really underpins this prize. Our group did some of this pioneering research, and then others like climate modellers and physicists said, yikes, we need to test our models back in the past to make sure they're working properly. These are the same models they're using to predict future behaviour of the ice sheet. So we've been using this past evidence, these past experiments that are natural, to test the ice sheet models and the climate models that we're now using to make better predictions of sea level rise in the future. So this sounds like a big jigsaw puzzle when it's got geologists and modellers and climate people and ice people in it. Where do you fit in, Rob? I was a student on the first project to drill underneath the ice sheet to see that it, it did indeed go away three million years ago. So the questions that have really sort of been stimulated since then is, is why did it go away? We know globally it might have been two to three degrees warmer, but we're seeing much warmer waters in the Ross Sea, the area that we were drilling, during those collapse events. And so we're trying to understand how do those warm waters get into the pole? Why do we have more warming at the poles than we do globally? And we think that's related to changes in the ocean currents. And so increasingly over the last 10 years, we've been going further offshore into the deeper waters off the edge of Antarctica to see how those warm waters got there and um, what were the thresholds to actually drive retreat. Because it actually... Some of these records indicate we might have actually had retreated as recently as 120,000 years ago, when globally it was only 1 to 2 degrees warmer. So we're really trying to understand what is the threshold to lose significant amount of ice. We don't think we lost as much as we did 3 million years ago, but it might have been 6 metres of sea level rise. So there's still um, large questions to answer in terms of how much warming does it take to significantly alter our polar regions. So when you talk about going further offshore, is this working from boats and doing sediment cores from a boat? Yes, that's correct. So the original project I came, came to work with in the ARC was working on the Andrel drill rig, which was drilling through an ice shelf. So that's a floating ice shelf that's about 80 metres thick. It was a nice, stable drilling platform. Um, to get further offshore, we have to use drill ships. Um, so the same sort of things that, rather ironically, the oil industry would use. Um, but we're using that for scientific discovery, trying to understand the basic mechanics of how the planet works. So you have to deal with much larger waves. The conditions are far more difficult to work with, um, floating sea ice, icebergs. So there's a lot more risk to it. But, yeah, the rewards are quite, quite amazing when you actually get the sediment out of the ground and you can get this amazing archive of, of ocean temperature and even how the biological response was to changing ice sheets over time, changing sea ice, because that's an important part of what regulates the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. But one of the things I'm taking from what you're saying is that we tend to talk about averages of climate change, so 
maybe we're going to get one or two degrees of warming, and then we think about that. That doesn't have even effects across the planet, is what you're saying. So it seems like the poles are particularly vulnerable. Poles are vulnerable. New Zealand's quite vulnerable to it as well. We sit on that um, interface between the poles and the equator. We're right on the edge of what we call the subtropical front, which is the difference between Antarctic and tropical waters. And we see that quite regularly, even on, on annual timescales in New Zealand. We had the marine heat wave in the Tasman Sea a few years ago. That's a change in ocean currents that dramatically affect water temperatures offshore in New Zealand, and it'll affect the biological systems that live in those, those areas as well in terms of delivering nutrients by those ocean currents. So it has quite wide-ranging effects, um, the most obvious one being the sea level. That's one we can most tangibly reconstruct in the geological past. But we're trying to look at that more complicated system of how do the poles affect places like New Zealand that, that lie in that, that sort of gateway between the equator and the poles. So this is very much as your proposal for the Prime Minister's Science Prize says, you know, it started with melting ice, but now it's rising sea levels. Absolutely, and that's a nice segue with what Rob just said about the, the regional impacts. And so part of what the team does is focus on well, what does this mean for New Zealand? If the Antarctic ice sheet is melting faster than we thought, what does that mean regionally for New Zealand? But for sea level rise, of course, we have to consider the Greenland ice sheet, the glaciers, the Antarctic ice sheet, and the, the heating of the ocean. So we have a research program called New Zealand Sea Rise, which Richard Levy, one of our team members, leads. And that program is taking the latest information we're producing in Antarctica from our models, along with all the other global information, and helping to uh, improve predictions of sea level rise around New Zealand. Of course, New Zealand's not a very stable place. It goes up and down. Um, that's because we sit on an active tectonic plate boundary, so we have earthquakes, as we all know. And in, in places, the land is just always subsiding or the land is always rising. So if the land's rising and sea level's rising, well, well, that's quite good. You're quite lucky if you live in one of those places on the coastline. But if the land is subsiding like the lower North Island is doing, at the same rate sea level is rising, but in the opposite direction, you double the whammy, you double the sea level rise. So for us, it's really important to build in local vertical land movements. That's what we're focused on with some of this research in the New Zealand Sea Rise Program. So that local authorities, regional councils, decision makers have a location-specific understanding of what sea level is likely to do in the future so they can manage it in their district plans and their adaptation options. And that's really the full science value chain the team represents, right? We go from the quite fundamental discovery lead stuff around Antarctica and how the climate system works, right down to rubber hits the road, what does this mean for New Zealand and how do we better prepare and anticipate for the impacts of climate change? So winning the Prime Minister's Science Prize, what's it going to mean to you as a researcher? I don't know, Alison. I mean, we're obviously very honoured and I'm thrilled for the team because this is no one individual could have pulled this off. This is, this is a number of people. For me personally, I guess I look back and reflect on what we've built and I feel very proud of it and, and the fact that it's making a difference in New Zealand. I hope this isn't one of these sunset prizes you give old people when they've done enough and say thank you very much. I still feel very um, motivated and, and keen to continue. So I think it'll give me a lot of motivation um, to continue and uh, do great science for New Zealand. This is actually my second award. I was the emerging scientist oh, almost seven or eight years ago. So 
What's nice about this award is it's actually a team award. Um, last time I got a, a sort of individual recognition out of this award, but at the time I really did feel like there was a team behind that. Um, I was part of this big drilling project um, that sort of was really groundbreaking internationally. So I was kind of embarrassed to take all the all the credit for it and the sort of very public profile. So the recognition as a, as a team is really, really quite rewarding for me. And as Tim said, what these awards do is they actually motivate you further. There's no chance to rest in your laurels. You have higher expectations of yourself and people have higher expectations of you. So I think it'll actually really motivate us to, to actually go forward and really build on the work that we've already done over the last decade. Thanks. There was Tim Nash and Robert Mackay, and they are both at Victoria University of Wellington's Antarctic Research Centre. The next prize-winning team members I talked to are Nick Gollidge and Nancy Bertler. My work focuses in particular on taking ice cores from coastal regions of Antarctica and interpreting them to understand climate um, interactions in the past, in particular how the climate influenced the ocean, the ice sheet and the atmospheric circulation pattern. So where have you been getting these ice cores from in Antarctica? So I worked predominantly in the Rossi region, the New Zealand area, along the coastlines where these ice cores are particularly sensitive to where we see how the ocean and the ice sheets interact. And what kind of things were you finding? I mean, one thing that really surprised us when we started that work was that the tropics were really important and how they influenced that region on very short time scales and that where we were expecting to see warming could actually turn into a cooling simply because it was overprinted by a tropical um, influence for a decade or so. Another really important part was when we started looking at um, a longer ice core record where we could actually look at the deglaciations or a time where the ice sheet um, responded really quickly, we could see that the Rossi region was an area that really responded very sensitively and quickly to this change, contributing and responding in a way that we wouldn't have anticipated before. And Nick, what's your area and what have you been doing for the last few years? My work revolves around numerical ice sheet modelling. So it's using computer models to simulate the behaviour of an ice sheet. Um, And most of the work we do obviously focuses on the Antarctic ice sheet, but we also look at the Greenland ice sheet as well. And a large part of the work that we do with the models is trying to ground those models with empirical data. So we go into the field, we go to Antarctica, we try and measure the behaviour of the ice sheet, essentially. So we'll use GPS units to, to track the flow of the ice. We also use uh, satellite products to figure out the velocity of the ice. And we can use techniques like radar to quantify how thick the ice is. So all these data go into um, constraining some of these numerical models. And the idea there is that we we use the observational data to make sure that our models are capturing the present day uh, as faithfully as we can. Once we have a model that we can rely on, um, then we can use it for the future projections. And that's the work that's obviously really policy relevant and societally relevant. So we try and use these models to look forward in time, sometimes just a century, sometimes longer, uh, looking at the long-term response of the ice sheet or looking at the decadal response, um, trying to understand how much these ice sheets might contribute to global sea level. So we've learned a lot in the last decade about what those ice sheets have been doing in the last few million years? We've learnt a lot about the dynamics of the ice sheets for sure. One thing that's really surprised the glaciological community in the last sort of 10 to 20 years is just how dynamic an ice sheet like Antarctica can be. So we've sort of always had an idea classically that a large ice sheet like uh, the Antarctic ice sheet is quite slow moving and, and flows pretty slowly 
on a sort of human time scales, but actually there are parts of it that can respond very, very quickly uh, in response to either an oceanic forcing or an atmospheric forcing. Uh, and that's kind of taking us by surprise a little bit, and it's forced us to develop models that can actually incorporate the processes by which those fast responses occur. So it's been a challenge, but we've learned a lot in the process. Tell me a bit about the two Antarctic ice sheets and how much water between them they lock up. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a huge lump of ice. If you melted the whole Antarctic ice sheet, you'd get about 60 metres of sea level equivalent, uh, which is, you know, kind of terrifying when you think about it, if we change the, the world's coastlines by that amount. Uh, but the vulnerable parts of Antarctica we think of mainly as West Antarctica, which gives us somewhere between three and a half and five metres, depending on how much of the, the ice above the sea surface melts. But then there are also parts of East Antarctica that sit below sea level as well, that um, they can be more vulnerable. And they could contribute another few metres easily, but a lot depends on time scale. So that's the, that's the real critical part, is understanding the time scale of the response. But the key thing is that in the next century or so, we're expecting maybe a few, a few centimetres to a few tens of centimetres from each of the ice sheets. So that's the, uh, the critical thing. But the, the, the takeaway from all the work that we've been doing, and not just ourselves but uh, globally, is that ice sheets uh, like the one in Antarctica tend to respond on such long timescales that even though you start to see an initial response quite quickly, that response goes on and on and on for hundreds, thousands of years. So although we'll only see maybe a few tens of centimetres sea level equivalent from Antarctica by the end of this century that contribution will be accelerating at the end of the century, so it will keep getting larger. So next century and the century after that, we'll see much, much higher sea levels as a result of the changes that we're putting in place now. One of the things, Nancy, that I think your work brings home, is, and you've already touched on that, is that connectedness, that we tend to think of Antarctica as this great stable thing at the bottom of the world that's disconnected from everywhere else, but that's far from the truth, isn't it? That's very right. So we were quite surprised when we initially sort of really understood the tropical connections and there's a lot more to understand yet. But I think what we um, tried to understand for a long time was the increase in sea ice around Antarctica, um, which seemed counterproductive to the idea of a, a warming um, world. And while there's still some questions around that, I think we're now understanding that that had something to do with the ozone hole, the change in the westerly winds that occurred which actually allowed stronger winds from the continent itself flowing northwards and pushing the sea ice out. So there are interactions that are so quite tricky um, to really get to the, to the um, bottom of those. And yet we have seen very strong changes in sea ice very recently, and we don't know if that's the new new, whether now the warming has caught up with it. The models still disagree on, on the actual forcing of it. But we know that the change in sea ice has very large implications of the change of the vulnerability of the ice shelves and with that, again, the, the flow of the ice sheet itself. So this is very relevant work, isn't it? It's utterly relevant and models like those that Nick just discussed are really important because the changes that occurring right now, you know, we, we've thought of climate change as something that the next generation has to deal with, but really it's us right now. We have a few years to make some very significant changes to adhere to the Paris Agreement and to avoid some very, very dangerous um, consequences of climate change. And yet we don't even know if the Paris Agreement itself, as ambitious as it is, is a safe threshold. So the models that you're working on, Nick, 
how long do you think it will be before you're satisfied with them? Or is that one of those areas that the more data that you can plug into them, then the better their predictive abilities become? That's absolutely right. The more data we have to test the models, um, obviously the better they, they get. But we're also learning a lot about the different um, physical processes that operate in, in Antarctica, both in the ocean, the atmosphere, and within the ice sheet itself. So all these things have to be captured somehow. We have to put some equations into the model that will allow us to incorporate those processes. And so that's what the, the global community have been working pretty hard on since the last IPCC report. Um, and what we're seeing now in the run-up to the next uh, report is many more models working together in these these large international intercomparison projects. So we have something like 20 different modeling groups around the world using very different models, uh, but all using the same climate forcings um, and using a range of climate forcings. And then we look at them statistically and we start to tease out the commonalities and we can say, well, we have a certain amount of confidence that the contribution from the ice sheet will be X, but we know that it will be within a much broader band with even greater confidence. So we can start to to sort of define the uncertainties a lot better. And that's a key part, I think, particularly for policymakers. So what's the significance of winning the Prime Minister's Science Prize? Obviously, it's hugely humbling to be recognised in that way. But I think for me personally, the biggest impact of that is that this work and the importance of us acting on climate change is clearly observed at the highest political level in New Zealand. And I think we can use the award, the the recognition of this work to have even greater impact with um, the public, with communities around New Zealand that we have to do something and we have to do it now. I think the visibility of this award is um, is one of the key things and, and just putting climate change front and centre in, in the public uh, is a really, really important thing. And, and it gives us, I think, some hope for the future that we'll be able to attract the better students to the university and, and to our uh, related institutes and, and bring those students up and, and, and get them on that path where they can be the ones making the, the next big advances. And I think that's kind of a really important part of this is sort of fostering that continuity. Thanks. There was Nancy Bootler and Nick Gollidge and they're both at Victoria University of Wellington's Antarctic Research Centre. The last person I catch up with from the team is Richard Levy from GNS Science. He's very involved with the Rising Seas part of the Melting Ice Rising Seas programme. So we've been looking at the long-term history of the Antarctic ice sheet, trying to see how it interacts with climate. Going back 34 million years, what, what does it do when the climate get, gets warm? How small does the ice sheet get? And what does that ultimately mean for sea level? And you're doing this through looking at sediment? Yeah, sediment core from collected from offshore. We recover these cores from beneath the seafloor and they tell us the story of the ice sheets when they were big and when they were small. And, and from that we link it to climate and try to come up with an understanding of drivers, forces, changes and, and consequences. And those ice sheets, they've been bigger than they are now, but they've also been much smaller than they are now? That's right. At times in the past they've been much bigger than they are today um, during episodes of of cold climate, glacial intervals, and then they've been much smaller than today during um, intervals of time when climate was much warmer. So that's what's happened in the past, and you're now taking that information and, in a sense, using it to look forward to what might happen in a warming world. So what do you think is going on at the moment? We know what's going on right at at the moment, the ice sheets are melting. The, the modern observations are showing us that the ice sheets are actually losing mass, so that's a concern. How much they will shrink, how much sea level will go up as they get smaller in the future is, is a big open question. And in order to answer that 
question we use models. Um, sort of our crystal balls in the science world are, are numerical models, and uh, we rely on these models to predict what will happen in the future. And we gain confidence in those models by looking back in the past and seeing if those computer simulations can actually replicate what we know happened in the past. If they can do that, we have much more confidence in their their forward-looking powers. And what those models are showing us, that if we keep tracking along the carbon pathway that we're currently heading along, um, the ice sheets are going to melt, they're going to get much smaller and sea level's going to go up. So we need to do something quickly, stop uh, putting carbon in the atmosphere, and uh, we should be right. You are very much involved now in trying to understand what the impact of those rising sea levels might be around around New Zealand. Can you tell me about that project that you're involved in? Yes, so I'm leading the New Zealand Sea Rise Programme. It's an MB-funded project where we're looking at the amount that sea level will go up around New Zealand's coastline using the predictions that we're making from the Antarctic models, but then trying to understand how vertical land movement will also either make those uh, levels greater or smaller Parts of New Zealand are actually going up as we speak today, millimetres per year, and so that actually slows down the amount of sea level rise. But there are other parts of New Zealand where the coastlines are subsiding or or going down, and that will cause sea level to go up faster than other parts of the world. So that's what the program's trying to do, is figure out how our dynamic coastline and global sea level rise will uh, interact. I mean, in some parts of of New Zealand, regardless of what happens to the ice sheets, regardless of what happens to um, sea level um, globally, sea level will go up or down just because of the way our our land is moving. So where's a good place to be in New Zealand? Where's not going down? A good place to be in New Zealand? Well, New Zealand's got lots of great places to be, but (laughs) away from the coast is my recommendation to most people. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but, um, you know, Several metres above current day sea level is, is a place to be, but there are parts of the country, parts of Bay of Plenty, that are actually going up faster than the rate of sea level rise today um, because of tectonic motion. And I guess if you want to uh, buy property and avoid the short-term impacts of sea level rise, that might be a place to go. So what happens with this information? You're collecting it, you're modelling it, you're trying to predict things. How's it going to be used? We're producing estimates of sea level rise Uh, using probabilities and uncertainty and when we start talking that way to to people who are trying to make these hard decisions about where you might be able to build or not uh, they want to know an exact number they want to know how much sea level will rise by 2050 by 2060 and it's a it's not exact there's a lot of uncertainty in in those predictions so trying to translate that knowledge to uh, policymakers is not an easy thing the best we can do is provide the the most robust up-to-date science and then work with social scientists work with policymakers to try to make that information useful. Trying to convey that to people on the street to say, you know, it could be this much, it could be that much, it's a bit frustrating, but that's really as as good as we can do at this point. So if you were to put rough figures on it, say looking forward 100 years, Mm. on average around New Zealand, what what amount of sea level rise might we be looking at? And I understand that's not a single figure, that Mm. that's a range. No, I think the best estimates without vertical land movement are anywhere between 50 centimetres and 1.4 metres. Uh, by 2100. But perhaps the largest uncertainty is how much carbon we'll end up putting into the atmosphere. Now, New Zealand's government has just passed the Zero Carbon Act, which is a great step forward, um, and and it sort of aims to to keep us to those lower lower numbers, the sort of 60 centimetres. But actually achieving that is is very difficult. The largest uncertainty really is, I I think, in, in what people decide to do with CO2 as a pollution. You know, if we really can crack that nut and um, reduce putting CO2 into the atmosphere, then we'll keep the amount of sea level to the lower end, to that sort of 60 centimetres. 
But regardless, we're going to have to deal with some amount of sea level rise. Uh, that, that's the reality. Um, and in places like Wellington, where 30 centimetres can make a big difference to uh, the coastline, you know, we've already got to start planning for that now, regardless of, of what we do with uh, future carbon dioxide emissions. Thanks, Richard. Richard Levy is with GNS Science. And a big congratulations to the Melting Ice and Rising Seas team for winning the 2019 Prime Minister's Science Prize. I'm Alison Balance in this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ First Ed on the 2nd of July 2020. You can listen again and find photos at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We have a free weekly email newsletter. It's very easy to subscribe to and you can find the link at the bottom of the webpage. That website again, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. RNZ, Our Changing World is also on your favourite podcast app. If you'd like to get in touch or follow along, we're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. In the meantime, many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Kia pai tora. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.